116 in the books. We are 106. We can drive a 100-year-old car. What do you mean? 116 episodes. I don't know. I don't get it, though. It doesn't make any sense, which is the point. 16. Oh, I get it. We're 16 and plus 100. I was just like, is what? there an old-fashioned car named the 116? No, there isn't. It's... Dear readers, welcome back. It's welcome. been a week since you've been there. It's been a day and we are in person. Guys, I we're tested in person. Negativo today. Shockingly so, considering I went to a super spreader event last weekend, but I have heard no one has tested positive. Yeah, don't uh don't take that as like a moral guideline no, no, for no, your no, life. No, no, I lucked out. Um yeah. I lucked out. You did. Um, Carrie went to a wedding. Carrie rode on an airplane. Carrie's doing things. I mean, I also went to a piano bar two days ago. I'm negative. I mean, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell you. She's living her life. Maybe you are too. I don't know how well I'm living my life, but I'm certainly living it. Meanwhile, um, I'm going out with parents from Coa's preschool tonight for drinks while Carrie babysits my kids. And I have told the parents, it is snowing right now in Brooklyn. It is, I think, like 27 degrees. And I told the parents we needed to have the drinks outdoors. So so we're all doing different things. Let, let's uh, let's take that with the what it is. <laughs> so, um, dear readers, I think we last spoke. Carrie is currently in the process of getting ghosted. But I did want to tell you an interesting story that I got on the date. And I did ask the person's permission before being ghosted. Mm-hmm. So I'm going <laughs> to share it. getting ghosted Prior by to them. getting ghosted, I was like, this is an insane story. So I want to tell you. It is, it is, it, do, it does involve bodily injury, but it's so wild. I can't wait. I did already tell you. Oh. I'll but act like pretend that. like you I didn't. didn't. Okay. So this guy I went on a date with, he had said that he was in... The, uh, Ditmas Park mm-hmm. for Halloween and mm-hmm. he was on some drugs and apparently there was an altercation happening on the street and he went to like intervene and he's like I did the one thing you're never supposed to do in New York is involve yourself Get like involved. you just run away walk away ignore it avert your eyes period yeah. well he was on some substances so he's like I can help so he goes to like tap the guy's shoulder and the guy turns around and socks him in the face right with like a fist so the next one, he, this guy is, like, knocked out. He comes to the next morning, and he's like, oh, my face. I'm, like, really in pain. I, you know, this must be what it's like to get in a fight. You know, he's never been in a fight. He's like, okay, my face is hurting. So a couple days pass, and he's like, it's still hurting. This, like, open hole is not closing in my face. And so he goes to a minute clinic, and they give him an x-ray, and... The x-ray comes back fine. They're like, you don't have anything in your eyes. You don't have anything in your face. You're fine. Just like Tylenol ice, you know, mm-hmm. that old chestnut. Six weeks pass, and he still has a hole in his face. A hole. Like, it's an open hole that's not healing. God. So he goes, he calls his uncle, who's like a facial surgeon situation. He goes in, and his uncle does an x-ray, like a better scan of his face and he's like you have something in your face and so he's like listen uh i'm gonna put you under we're gonna take care of it tomorrow 
So he goes under, he wakes up from anesthesia, and his uncle is waving two inches of a Dixie Ticonderoga pencil. What? Being like, why did I just pull this like out of my... pencil? Or like, like a, a part par- of a pencil? Like a part of a pencil. Oh my He's like, why did I just pull this out of my nephew's face? Because so he had- do you think the guy wound up and hit him with a pencil? Yes. That's so scary and it's like he could have died he could have gotten his eye oh it's like right below his eye because he was like oh look at this scar and i was like holy shit and then i was like i need i need proof because you know what it's important even though i'm getting ghosted i i love proof the play or the play the the musical the movie gwyneth paltrow goop okay so the word association word association which is my which is my favorite okay hold on wait let me find the photo so i can show you up close in purse personnel okay so i text them and i was like all right you need to send me a photo of the pencil that was in your face because he still has it (gasps) that's so much pencil now you might be thinking part of the pencil like no eraser no what do you call it tip it is so insane. And then you might think, Carrie, he goes to Jew. Maybe he's a liar. We don't know. And then he sent me this photo. That's gross. And I don't want to look at it anymore. Which is like an x-ray of his face with the graphite pointing out of the skull. And it's like it went through his sinuses. Oh, my God. That hurts me so much. I know. To think about. I just had to tell you because I was like, this is insane. And I asked, I was like, can I share this on my podcast? Now, listen, it could all be a lie. OK, it could all be a lie. We don't know anything about this guy except that he ghosts people. We have no idea. Literally. Guys, and he had a pencil maybe in his face. Maybe in his face. It is so weird. I love my life. <laughs> well, I love your life, too. What can I say? You know what? If I didn't have these stories, why, why come here? Why, why not do it if not harvesting stories? You're right. Every bad thing that happens to you, I hope that's what you think. Well, at least it's good fodder. Totally. Totally. Thousand percent. All hands right. down, hundo. That's something. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I have to tell you, I was listening to a podcast this week that had not a ours. really... Not ours? What the fuck? I know. I only listen to us. <laughs> it was um, a really good piece of advice that I thought was also uh, something I could actually apply So I have, I don't know if I have face blindness, but I do have that thing where someone tells me their name and I guarantee you, I think of anything other than their name while they say it. I don't know if face blindness because it's it's clearly name deafness. Name deafness. It's like face blindness. It's a, yeah, it's a It's a sensory deprivation. It's a a, uh, sensory disorder. It's really a bummer though. It's really embarrassing because uh, especially now that Koa is a, kid and does things like goes to schools and you meet all the parents and I know that I'm going to start meeting teachers all these things and you're I'm one in one ear out the other with so the you name live in fear you and live I live in fear because I see people and I'm like nope and I met a mom on the playground a while ago and met her son this happened I think at the library or something and we met several times Luckily, she didn't remember me either, probably because of the masks. Oh, thank God. But I saw her on a playground, and I know she's having a hard time from neighborhood gossip um, because her son was diagnosed pretty severely autistic. Oh. And I see them on the playground. Her son ran up to me and kind of just stopped. And so I said to him, hey, Ben, or something like, I know you. And she ran up right behind and was like, you don't know him. 
his name is Adam or something like this. It was one of those things where like right oh, away dang. she's like in defense of, but yeah. it was super embarrassing because I definitely did know him and had met him several times and just forgot his name. Anyway, I'm very bad at remembering everyone's name, anyone's name. And this podcast had a really good trick. Ooh, isn't it you repeat the name right away? No, it's better. So say that I met you mm-hmm. and you're like, hi, I'm Carrie. The first thing that I do is I picture you murdering Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> Which, by the way, as someone who writes a parody of Sex in the City, I murder her every night. But like you meet me and I'm like, hey, I'm Quinn. You picture I'm killing someone you know named Quinn. It can be I'm famous kill- not. For me, it's like you're killing you. Well, that doesn't count because oh. that wouldn't be helpful. Oh, okay. It'd be if you met someone, the way to remember it. You meet someone, hi, I'm John. You picture that John killing a John that you know. You think this works? 100%. Why? Because it's so visual and shocking. And the idea is the next time you see that person, you pictured a whole scene where they murdered someone with a name you already know. And it's the same as their name. So when I see you again... I picture you killing Carrie Bradshaw and I go, oh, that's Carrie. So that's the opposite of face blindness. Because the thing is, is you see faces and you're like, I know them. You just don't remember their name. Opposite face blindness. You're like, faces I recognize because I can imagine this face killing someone with the same name. I'll be honest. The pandemic did me no favors in that department with the masks. I'm like, is that you? Have we met? Do we know each other? My brain has atrophied of being like, I'll go into things being like, is that? I, I did say call someone the wrong name, and it's plagued me for years. And I feel so terrible. I still yeah, feel terrible. I do it all the time. And you know what I do now? I don't introduce people ever, ever. It's very rude, and I don't do it because I'm way too anxious that I'm going to say I'm gonna the, wrong fuck up the wrong name. Well, yeah. And it makes me look Oof. like a total asshole. Well, can't you be like, this is Carrie? To, for the one person I do know in the convo? Yes. Sure. Sure. But I think it's like so this. obvious. You like this. You, hey, this is my friend Ke- Koa, and then run to see the kid like they're in distress. Oh, you got the best out. Totally. You're like, oh, my like, kid. Ah, like, oh, like, mommy brain. We're all at a bar together. Koa's not here. It's nine o'clock at night. That's true. Oh, you sleep. I hear him. So then I'd be like, Mother's intuition. Hey, this is, oh my goodness. Do I have to take a whiz? I got to pee. No. <laughs> run away. Um, by you know the, what? I've oh, got... Oh, no, go ahead. By the way, you're listening to Truly, Truly Darkly, Creeply. We did it all together. Because we we're Carrie Ipama. And Quinlan Posner. And we are here uh, singing at you. <laughs> we've taken your notes of no more singing and we've ignored them. Yeah. So, uh, you know what? You know who's not going to sing to you is us. We're going to instead tell you a word from our sponsors. Here you go. Do I want to exercise every day? Yes. Do I? No. Do I want to eat a healthy meal every day? Yes. Do I? No. Would it be helpful if somebody emailed me every morning recipes and exercises I can do at home? Yes. That's why I'm here to talk to you about Movement and Meals. It's a newsletter that is delivered to your inbox every morning that says, hey, here's a recipe. Here's a way to move your body. And you do it. What's really cool about it, too, is if you sign up for this newsletter on Saturdays, they send you a shopping list for what you need for the upcoming week. So it's like mindless. You just can have healthy meals, do exercises without having to think about it. So you can try this for two weeks for free 
at movementandmeals.substack.com. And after the two-week trial, it's just seven bucks a month. That's it. It's like 35 cents a day for somebody else to just make all those decisions for you, which let's be honest, that's what we want. We want someone to tell us what to do so that we don't have to use that part of our brain. So sign up for Movement and Meals for free for two weeks at movementandmeals.substack.com and let let's outsource someone controlling that part of our life, right? I could use that. Could you? Again, movementandmeals.substack.com. Get your life right. Carrie. Quinlan. I want to tell you about Hydronique Hydration. Basically, what happened was that there was a frontline healthcare worker who was getting a bunch of headaches during the pandemic. And there was this research study that showed that up to 81% of frontline healthcare workers get new headaches, and it's because of their PPE. It's because of like the face masks and the shields. It prevents them from eating and drinking properly during their job, and everybody starts to feel like shit, like just tired, dehydrated. So the founder's like, okay, we need a really quick drink that has all the vitamins, the the minerals, no sugar, keto-friendly, healthy, but everything on the market isn't what I want, so I'm going to create my own thing. And thus was born Hydronique Hydration. Remind me something. What was your um, resolution this year? To drink more water. And so instead, I'm just going to drink Hydronique Hydration. Go ahead and get it. You can visit their website at www.hydroniquehydration.com and I will spell that. It's www.h-y-d-r-o-n-i-q-u-e hydration.com or just search Hydronique Hydration on Amazon and they are currently offering a $10 discount coupon at checkout for this next week. So We'll put the link in our bio. Go for it. Stay hydrated. Thank you to our frontline workers. We love supporting this work as well because of all the amazing work that you do for us. So, hydroniquehydration.com. Get yours. And we're back. Um, do we sing in our ads now? No, I Sometimes think, I don't think. No, frequently. we don't. We try to keep it pretty chill. We try to keep it a little bit above board. Super cool. Super super, super cool. Super cash. Extra super grown upsies. Extra grown upsies. Thousand percentos. Big pantalones. Big pantalones. So here's my question: In the next episode, should we call the guy that's ghosting me just to see if he answers? Definitely. <laughs> Give the readers what they came here for. Your shame. <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's Carrie, really funny. Here's the thing. I'm going to do this kind of intense story that <gasps> is, is a personal story? story. Yeah. I I don't know much about this story, but I do know that it's very personal. Um, so I got to like really drop in. Yeah. Well, actually, it's kind of interesting because for. Um, all right, dear readers, what I want to tell you guys is I'm doing a story that is about one of Matt's friends. And I asked Matt if I could do it. He said yes. Uh And this is kind of crazy that this happened this way, but I was like, okay, I have a bunch of emails that Matt was sent and personal things to give me some background. And then additionally, I, of course, uh, Googled and found some interesting things, but there was an article by Ariel Sophia. But mainly what I found is that Harley Rustad, who had written an article about this in um, Outside Online, or Outside Magazine, he went on to write a book. And the book came out this month. No Like, it way. just came out. 
And it happened to just come out in this way where I was like, I'm thinking of doing this. What's the information out there? And a book was released about it this month. Did you read it? I um, audibled it. Okay. It's called Lost in the Valley of Death. And it is by Harley Rustad. And so did Harley know him? No. But Harley talked to everyone about this. Okay, wow. Everyone, everyone, everyone. So it if you want a exhaustive, excellent, well-researched piece of information about this story, which is the story of Matt's friend Justin Alexander, then that is where I suggest you go. Wow. Uh it's a really good story. And what I know about uh Justin is that he was born in Sarasota, Florida, and when he was 16, he was taken out of high school and enrolled in a wilderness aware a wilderness awareness school. He was super into that and it was like a na- nature-based education program. It's mm-hmm. near Seattle. And one of the founders was like this guy's awesome. Really liked Justin, took him to a New Jersey school that was similar and then one of the teachers there really bonded with him and they would go out and do crazy things like track wolf packs on foot. Whoa. Justin's had an amazing life. So to be clear, I cannot actually go through everything. He's like ridden motorcycles for months across different places. And he's traveled a lot. He's. And how does Matt know him? Okay, well, what happened was that in 2005, they were both working in California at the Rikers Center, which is an after school nonprofit place that they do all kinds of different classes and Matt was there teaching video production with his friend Kenny and Justin was there and he was like part of the athletic department and Matt was saying even though they don't pay you a lot when you're a kid teaching there like Matt was a kid I mean he was in his 20s they give you a ton of perks including getting to use a lot of the rec center for free so they were like here's your personal trainer Justin And he would work out with Justin all the time. And then Matt and Kenny were like, we want to take these kids in our video production class to Nepal. And we want them to be out of their comfort zone. And we want to shoot the whole thing and make a movie of it and have the kids work on this movie with us. And And the rec center's like, yeah, great. We'll raise the money for you to do this, basically. Whoa. Really cool opportunity. They needed somebody to be a medical officer on that excursion, and that person ended up being Justin. Okay. so Because he's like wildlife guy, outdoorsy. Like, he's the right guy for that task. Totally. So they were already friends, and then they took these kids, these teens, to Nepal. And I was asking Matt about the trip, and it was funny because Justin's like super handsome, super ripped. And he kept taking his shirt off. And they were like, Justin, put your shirt back on. You're going to get sick. Justin, put your shirt back on. You're going to get sick in Nepal. And then he got very sick. (laughs) Because I was like, how was Justin there? He's like, oh, he was pretty sick. (laughs) Um, They used to meet up with each other in California and kind of play around the Stanford campus at night, like climbing things, climbing structures and being like ninjas. And... Justin kind of taught Matt some survivalist things. They went camping a few times in the wilderness. And then Matt moved to L.A. And Justin would come visit him sometimes. He um, he remembers getting, like, annoyed with Justin in L.A. Because he would invite Justin to a friend's house for dinner and be like, oh, you got to meet my friends. And he'd invite him for dinner. And Justin would just sit and be on his phone. 
and not be very like polite. Yeah. And Matt would later be like, man, what's your problem? That was super embarrassing. And Justin was like, hey, while you were developing social skills, I was in the woods tracking wolves. (laughs) I don't have the same ability to like engage or engage and drop into situations like these. I'm self-conscious, you know, all these things. And Matt said it was also that if something didn't interest Justin, he would just kind of be like shut off, which he's a survivalist. The stakes in his life, he always created them to be high. Yeah. If that makes sense. In 2009, um, he starts working for um, like a tech startup that's a luxury goods kind of thing. It was so not him. So he was like wearing suits and really dressing well and going to very fancy places and traveling all the time. And what I think happened is he realized he did love to travel, but not that way, not right. fancy way. Um, so when he's 32 years old in, I guess it's like 2013, he's like, you know what? I'm done. I'm retiring. I have enough money from this dopey job that I just had that didn't mean anything to me that I'm going to retire Meaning like he was going to try to stretch that money. Not like I'm going to retire and buy a house and a car. Like I'm going to retire and I'm going to travel, but I'm also going to do it crazy low budget. Right. So he sells most of his stuff. He packs a backpack basically and just spends the next however long on the road. He drives his motorcycle around the United States. He's backpacking through South America and Asia. And he visits New York in June of 2014. And I was dating Matt at the time. And Matt was like, I got to go meet my friend Justin, but we're going to meet at night because we like to do ninja stuff. And I was like, okay. Is Justin the friend that he would climb bridges with? Totally. So he would meet him and he that was like the night, I told you guys about the time Matt climbed the Brooklyn Bridge. He also climbed the Manhattan Bridge. Both of those bridge were climbs Justin. were with Justin. The two of them. And it was very scary. Then um, he ended up coming back in November of 2015 and staying with us for okay. maybe like a week. And it was so funny because he's I, I kind of got attached to him in this way where at first I was like, you're such a bad house guest because he would do this thing where he'd like come sit in our living room and I'd be making dinner and I'd hand Matt dinner and I'd hand him dinner and he would just start eating. He wouldn't say anything. And so Matt would be like, thank you, Quinn. Thank you for this food. And then Justin would kind of look up and go, oh, yeah, yeah, thanks. And I would kind of tease him about it. Yeah. Um, I felt by the end of the week like I. I developed almost like an older sister. And to be clear, I think I am younger than him maybe or the same age. But I I had this thing of like, Justin. And I'd say to him, was there anything I could do? I'd say, yeah, will you just bring a bottle of wine tonight? Because, you know, he's staying at our place. I'm cooking him dinner all these nights. (laughs) Shows up with cupcake. Like the gas, the wine you would well, like get at a Seven Eleven. He was retired, and he was, <laughs> he was trying retired. to stretch his money. He's trying to stretch the money. So true. Um, oh my god, yes, no, but it's so funny, right? You can't like. It's so common to, to sort of be like, that's not how I re- I was raised. Like, why why are you doing that? Why aren't you? You know, and it's like sometimes people just have to be really be told. Yeah, and he was really sweet. Um, his heart was sounded really good, right? His heart sounds good. It just. Yeah, he was raised differently. He did his, you know, I think 
my mom's always like, you never show up to a house empty handed. You always come, you know, and that's something that like a parent teaches you. He was not tracking wolves. I'll say it again. Exactly. That was where he was. He was tracking wolves. Anyway, while he was staying with us, they had already climbed the bridges. So they did, I guess, what you call uh, urban adventuring. And it was so terrifying. They would go out at night and they would climb abandoned construction sites in New York. And when I say abandoned construction sites, I mean of skyscrapers. And they would they went to the top of a skyscraper, Carrie, and there was a crane and they climbed the crane like out above the city. No, Uh, the pictures I have of this are shocking and terrifying. And I remember Justin would post them and write, this is not me because it's a felony. Yeah. Um, Cause you can't, cause you can't, cause you can't, I mean like if they were, it's a felony to do it. Uh, Jesus. And it's really scary stuff. I will actually post some of these photos so you guys can see. Um, there's some cute ones of just like their feet or them looking out over the city and, and um, you know, stuff that really gave me a heart attack, but That's what they would do. They'd go out at night and they'd do that. And then he left after that to continue his travels. And he ended up going to Nepal and like helping build back a school that had been destroyed in an earthquake. And then he goes to India. Wow. Like what a life to create. I feel like that's such a lesson in like, you know, we save money. I feel like you and I are very similar. We're like, we're money conscious. We save money. We want to make sure like everything is okay. We have like mm-hmm. a savings fund. And sometimes I sit there and I'm like, why am I not spending it? Like, why am I, like, what am I waiting for? Honestly, yeah. like take the trip, do the thing. It's totally. like, he was really somebody that was really good at living life to their fullest. I will say that one thing that was really strange about reading the book was that we, f- this was so weird. So I'm, oh God. I'm listening to the book and they go through his life and then they go to the part that I'm at where he goes to India. And at a certain point, the guy's like, Justin was always sort of looking for something maybe to get through this trauma because when he was a little kid, like eight, he, his parents were working and they had a, somebody watching him, um, that sexually abused him. Mm -hmm. And he ended up one day like crying to his mom and being like, I'm bad. Mm. And she figured it out. And so they left and they kept moving. And this guy kept following them, like stalking Justin, childhood Justin. <sighs> so scary and so upsetting. And oh, my God. Yeah. And then they were watching some show, a Dr. Phil-esque show. I don't know if that's what it was. And kids were talking about being sexually abused on it. And Justin was watching it. And he was like, that's what happened to me. And that's what he said to his mom. Oh, it's just so upsetting. And it was really crazy because I'm like, Matt, did you know this? And he's like, no. So it's very strange that that's in the aftermath of all this reading the book. I was like, did you know Justin was sexually assaulted? He's like, no. And then Justin went to go work on this guy's farm when he was 15. I think the idea was the guy was a wilderness kind of expert and was going to trade lessons or expertise for Justin doing work on the farm. Mm -hmm. And then the guy sexually assaulted Justin when he was 15. So it happened to him twice in his life. And I I can't imagine. Heartbreaking. Yeah. It's just so upsetting. So. And to carry that trauma and even to your closest friends. To not share. And obviously, everybody processes things differently. And, you know, 
repressing something as a way to, you know, mm-hmm. if it were, you know, but, ugh, that's so heartbreaking. So what happens after Nepal is Justin goes to India and he's spending a bunch of time on sort of a spiritual retreat, I guess you would call it, in the Parva- Parvati Valley, which is really deep in the Indian Himalayas. And he's living in a cave. And he's, to be clear, he's living in a cave, but he's also like going to an internet cafe and posting pictures of him living in a cave. Right. So we have like a lot of information via uh, Instagram and via his blog about what he was doing. He's Mm -hmm. not off the grid. In August, he posts something to his blog that I'm going to read because this is Justin's final blog post. Okay. I just came down from the mountain and will soon head back. A sadhu has invited me on a pilgrimage high in the Himalayas to meditate. Here is what happened. After some solitude in the caves at 10,000 feet in the Indian Himalayas, I made my way down to the sacred hot springs of Kirganga where I could warm my bones and watch the sunrise. This is a place where Shiva's warrior son, Kartikya, meditated in a cave for 3,000 years to cool off after slaying all the demons of the ancient world. It is also the honeymoon site for Shiva and his wife, Pavardi, hence the name of Pavardi River Valley. This also, coincidentally, is the mouth of Shiva. One morning, I was walking by the smoky stone hut of a Naga Baba, which is a type of sadhu, yogi, or ascetic Hindu holy man, on my way to the springs. He had been watching me come down the mountain, and when I came near, he waved me inside. Over the next two weeks, we became friends, I think. He knows over 84 um, asanas, which are yoga poses, Mm -hmm. Um, and he demonstrated some incredible contortions for me. After showing him a picture of my cave, he offered to feed me rice pudding, chapati, and milk tea. I ran out of money and food, so he fed me each time I passed. Sometimes local Indians would stop by to bring some buffalo milk, cheese, or tobacco and sit for a while. He would ask them questions about me, and they would struggle with some very rough translations. From what I understand, Nagababas are wild holy men who wander naked and alone in the Himalayas, live in caves, live in caves, smoke chillins of powerful has- hashish, and meditate a lot. They are living their lives in the image of Lord Shiva, who spent much of his life doing the same. Some of them are reported to go months without food, living on pure life energy and hash. So... He invited me along on his pilgrimage, three days hard trek to lake at 13,000 feet, and then 10 days meditating in spiritual retreat, living amongst the rocks in a place without vegetation or wood to burn, then three days back to a small village. I've been cold, damp, and hungry a lot recently. I'm feeling a bit malnourished and weak already. I think this is going to be a challenge on every level, and I'm nervous. The area is uninhabited, and we are taking very little food. Some rice, flour, sugar, tea... He says he doesn't need to eat. The nearest village is at least two days walk. So if I get sick, hurt, or starve, it's going to be a tough solo trip out. The trail is notorious in its landslide season. He speaks no English besides good and yoga. And I'm not totally sure why I was invited. Without words, he can't teach me any ancient doctrine or explain anything intellectual. But from what I understand, he wants to mentor me in the ways of sadhu, of the Shiva, the first yogi. He follows a strict spiritual routine and I know nof- that I know nothing about and am intensely curious. These babas are said to have magical powers from decades of an ancient yoga practice. 
but I really don't know what to expect. I've never done yoga. And his style is extremely based on the grotesque. His, and his style is extreme based on the grotesque swelling in his joints. But I want to see the world through his eyes, which are essentially 5,000 years old, an ancient spiritual path. I'm going to put my heart into it and see what happens. My back is in bad shape, broken when I was 19, and even with daily soaks in the hot springs, this cave mountain life has recently put me in a state of constant discomfort. I'm sadly inflexible, and I can't even sit for a few minutes without pain. Maybe Baba life will be good for me. I should return mid-September or so. If I'm not back by then, don't look for me. Winky face. We're going to talk about what we know took oh place. Oh my god. But that is the last public post that Justin made. Oh my god. I'm I'm awestruck by I don't know if this is going to come out right, but I'm struck by this this guy who is still so open to other people's like he's so like I don't know if he's running or whatever or chasing something I don't know. This person feels incredibly trusting of people and has also been constantly let down. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that. So one thing he writes about the sadhu as kind of a PS on this is also this sadhu has cut his penis off in full renunciation of lust. I don't know how to casually drop that bomb, but I find it both unsettling and impressively dedicated. Now, what I want to tell you guys is that the yoga Remember he said his joints are swelling from doing yoga? That was not from yoga. That was definitely from some sort of medical condition, maybe cancer. Also, he had not cut his penis off. So I don't know why he told Justin that or how he told Justin that or if there was a misunderstanding. Again, he didn't speak English. Because people found this guy? Yeah, we definitely. We'll get there. Um, Rawat is his name. And there's rumors about him that he's not an authentic sadhu and that He's what people call a business Baba. That's kind of, um, there are a lot of them. They're yeah. false holy men that look like Babas and say they are, but they but are not. not about spiritual enrichment. They're about Personal enriching their enrichment. pockets. Yeah, exactly. um, oh, wow. Yeah. And I know he was asking Justin to give him money, which Justin doesn't write in here, but we know that to be true. And I think that there's a little bit of, in these blog posts, there's some romanticizing, right? Of of your experience. Yeah, of your experience. In it, it's we, hard. All of, we all do that. Do I that. don't think that's uncommon at all. I'm just like, I mean, I I can't imagine his parents. That's how they get updates of their kid who's mm-hmm. so far away and how tough that might feel. Yeah. Justin had befriended at this point an older Russian guy. Um, and he has done the trek before that Justin's about to do and is like, it's serious shit. It's hard to make a fire up there without that wood and everything. He gives Justin a lighter and he has a bad feeling. And he kind of tells Justin that like his blink is going off and he's like, Ooh, I don't think you should do this. Yeah. He well, tells him that to be entered, careful. The fact that he's like, I feel malnourished already. Yeah. And he's in pain. Well, I think Justin has a bad feeling too. Cause you know what he says to this guy, this Russian is he says, if I die, write something nice about me on Facebook. 
there's like some ominence there being felt by him, I think. He leaves on the 24th of August. He says goodbye on social media, says goodbye to his mom, who also his mom has reservations about this. She doesn't feel good about this idea, but obviously with a son like Justin who's running around and doing these sort of off the grid, crazy, over the top, risky, daredevil, adventure things all the time. She's not like, don't go. Um, Yeah, yeah. On Instagram before leaving, he he posts that in the last few days I've been resupplying for the Baba Trek. I finally got everything together. A kilo of rice, sugar, flour, some tea, a tarp, 10 boxes of cigarettes and matches, all for him. I'll bring some oats, nuts, and raisins, plus my sleeping pad and my bag, my clothes, a wool blanket, rain cover, a metal cup, machete, cameras, and um, power banks. We are going to a harsh, high-altitude area to live in a cave, meditate, and practice yoga. I leave tomorrow and should be back to the internet world by mid to late September. It's been nice to be in a place where I can eat, take hot showers, use the internet, and talk to people. Solitude makes me appreciate human connection all the more. There's only one road in and out of the Pavardi Valley. There's mountains on one side and there's cliffs on the other. By the end of September, Justin has not returned. His mom is starting to get worried. She also in this time has a dream that she journals about when she wakes up from it. It is a dream that she says felt super real where a person was attacked and thrown from a mountain into a river. And she woke up, she wrote about it, and she was like, I feel like it was Justin. Oh, my God. Three Indian hikers come forward once Justin's not returned, and they're like, we saw Justin and the Baba and a porter near Mantalai Lake, which was where they're going, and we took a picture. And they have pictures of them with Justin at the lake. Justin told them, I'm really tired. I'm really hungry. I want to descend. And the holy man and Justin, when I say they were together, they weren't really together. They were like 30 minutes apart on the trail. There are some secondhand accounts of Justin and the Baba fighting about something. And some people say that they heard that the Baba wanted to go back and Justin wanted to stay. So he was like, no, I want to go back. And he poked Justin in the ribs while they were hiking. Um, but the hikers are like, why don't you come with us to Justin? And he's like, no, I really want to get back to my things and the internet. I want to edit my video. I want to rest. So they give food to him. He looks bad, like hungry and beat down. And they're like, okay, you're like two, a two or three day hike from home. Good luck kind of thing. They're the last people other than potentially the Baba that saw Justin alive. Justin has an ex-girlfriend that ends up posting a GoFundMe in, during this kind of period of time. And she wrote directly, we saw the GoFundMe. We got an email. Matt got an email that was like... I remember like, you guys sent it to us. Yeah, I remember. He was so weirded out by it because Justin said he wouldn't be back till like late September. Yeah. And so we start getting this GoFundMe that's like, we need money to look for Justin. And we were like, what? Justin's fine. Mm -hmm. And I was like, do you think this is a scam? And somebody, because maybe somebody in India met him and is trying to 
totally. scam his family while he's gone and can't be reached. Yeah. And we didn't know this Linda. So Matt wrote her kind of this email that was like, who are you? Have you talked to Justin's parents? And she wrote back and was really defensive, but rightfully so, sort of being like, I can't get into all these details, but we need to look for him. Okay. And we were like, what? Like, we were just so confused yeah. by the whole thing. Meanwhile, uh, another friend of Justin's hears that he hasn't returned and gets in touch with a, which a, with a mutual friend. And they end up hiking three hours to Kirganga to see if anyone knows anything. And they find Rawat, the Baba, and he's back in his hut. And they're like, hey, where's Justin? And the Baba just keeps saying, Justin's crazy, Justin's crazy, and getting kind of mad. And he says he didn't want to descend he wanted to stay at the lake. We argued and I left him behind while they're talking to the Baba and getting his words translated. He says, I had a dream that Justin is playing his flute and he's no longer with us anymore. Justin had a flute that was also a walking stick that he traveled everywhere with. There are pictures of him with it, sort of a calling card for him. Justin's mom ends up flying to India at this point. Oh, my God. This they is horrible. They arrest Rawat, and his story keeps changing. Yeah. In all kinds of different ways. First of all, no one knew about the porter till Rawat says it. And then he's like, yeah, there was a porter traveling with us to Mantelai to carry my stuff. And the last time that I saw Justin, we stopped for tea on our way down from the lake. I sent the porter ahead to prepare our camp. Justin went after the porter, and I was last because um, my knees were bothering me. And when I got there, I met up with the porter, but Justin wasn't there. So sometime during that walk, Justin disappeared. I, uh. But he says the porter and him didn't talk about it at all, which is also very weird. You wouldn't be like, where's Justin? Anyway, he keeps the story is changing all the time of whether Justin was continuing down with them and vanished mm-hmm. or went back to Mantelai Lake. There's another Baba that lives up there by the lake and he earns money because he has food and um, he's like the only shelter up there. Yeah. He says he sees Rawat sometimes and that he saw them and the porter on the way up. And Rawat tells the police, oh, we met that guy. We stayed in his hut on the way down. And that guy's like, no, they didn't. So, again, his story is just, like, all over the place. A sheep herder saw them and on the way up, and they were like, can we camp here? And he was like, yeah, you can fix your tent tarp to my tent. And they bought milk from him. But on the way back down when they pass that same guy they keep a distance and it's just Rawat and the porter and they don't see Justin and that's kind of weird because they don't purchase milk from him on the way down yeah there's just more and more stories coming out they take a helicopter to Mantelai Lake to look for Justin and they walk around the trail and it goes through a meadow and there's one part really close to a cliff's edge it's really high up and the river below is torrential they see justin's flute no down below and they go down to investigate and his flute is stuck like upright in the ground not like it 
fell flat. Like it's like Like deliberately stuck. Yeah. Okay. Like a beacon or something. His backpack covers there. His lighter that the Russian gave him is there. And his scarf is there. His iPhone is not. His machete is not. Things that were worth money are not there. It doesn't feel like it could have been a landslide. They're looking at the landscape. That doesn't seem right. Could he have been trying to go down to the water to get water and fallen? Could he have been pushed? There's no sign of a struggle. When they start looking into Justin's credit cards and stuff, he Mm -hmm. had withdrawn a really strange, somewhat large amount of rupees in August which people also think is weird because it would have been enough to pay for like a guest house and things like that. And if his whole plan is to go live off the grid with the sadhu, why did he take out that money? That's something the book brings up that they don't know the answer to. Or did he have to pay Rawat, you know? Sure. Sure. Maybe that was it. Maybe that was it. But it's a lot of money was the thing. Exactly. Uh, Just as far as India goes, like it would have gone a long way. And if his plan was to go be in nature, even if he had to pay uh, the Baba, it it feels like they don't know why all that money got withdrawn. But as the story starts to, I want to say unfold, but really it's not unfolding. They found his stuff and nothing else. They don't want the story in India to be that this Baba murdered Justin. That's not really bad. Yeah. Yeah. So they start kind of trying to pull the angle of this guy was smoking a lot. He was on drugs and let's make it a drug thing. You know what? Let's make it a he decided to be lost kind of thing. Look at his last post. Don't if I don't come back, don't look for me. Winky face. They're really able to get some pretty good mileage off that being the last thing Justin said. But in in general, the police are just unmotivated and it sounds like they really aren't proactive about this investigation at all. They're trying to do the bare minimum yeah. to appease the family. And Ugh, that's when they enough. find the flute, this was so sad, anecdotally from the book, this story, that when they found the flute, they want to take it into custody or whatever. And Justin's mom doesn't want to give it to them because it's starting to feel like it's like they're not going to find anything from the flute, yeah. but she knows she'll never get it back. And so she and a friend go to a store and they're trying to get them to make a duplicate of the flute so they can give the police like a fake flute and keep the Justin flute. Did they get to keep it? But it breaks and they have to give them the flute. I mean, it's so disappointing. Everything about it. So what happens is the Baba's in prison and it's about 48 hours till they're going to have to release him Mm -hmm. because they don't have anything. The guard goes to pee. And comes back, and the Baba is dead. He's hung himself with his loincloth, which was all that was in the cell with him. It is not uncommon for prisoners to be tortured. It is not clear whether they were torturing him, but it seems likely. Wow. And it seems like they were trying to get information from him and beating him. There is... We do not know. We do not know if this was suicide. We do not know. Oh, my God. But you can imagine that when he dies, so much hope is lost for trying to figure out what possibly could have happened. And it seems very unlikely he would have killed himself 48 hours before he knew 
he was going to be released. What's also alarming is that after they cut him down, they take him to a district hospital really far away. Not the closest way of handling it. Like, Mm. they declare him dead. They talk to the porter. The porter story aligns with sort of the most recent story the Baba gave. They can't hold the porter. This article by Ariel Sophia Barty talked to a person in the camp that knew Rawat and says he was a criminal. He stole my tablets, then sold them back to me for 2,000 rupees. He used to tell us he sold his property, his wife, and his children to come here. And then this person said, Nepal is a very corrupt country. If this all happened, why didn't the Baba file a police report? He thinks that the Baba pushed Justin and threw his body in the river. And when they're like, why do you think he would have done that? This guy's like, I think for hash, he was addicted. So whatever that means, to sell Justin's belongings, I guess. Oh, my God. The Parvati Valley has been called India's backpacker Bermuda Triangle. They say that the conditions are just really ripe for people vanishing and that it's happened pretty frequently. In 1996, a guy from the UK disappeared after telling his father that he had become friends with a Baba. There's a Canadian graduate who vanished in May of 1997, a 21-year-old son of a banker who went missing in May of 1999. There was a Russian economist who was 33 and vanished in April in 2000. Oh, my God. And I think you just don't know if these people were killed or there are stories of, of people vanishing in India and then you discover that they they went there to, to disappear. To disappear. Right? I think it's impossible to believe that there wasn't foul play in this particular case because everything about it feels wrong but also it's now been years and years and years and years and Justin would not have done that he wouldn't have even done it for a year he wouldn't have even done it for a month to his mother who would do that to their mother there's no way his mother had written everybody at one point and said something along the lines of it was an honor to be his mother. And I think that really impacted Matt at the time because he was like, If what? the mom is giving up searching and not I giving think up, I don't think she'll after... ever give up. But like, well, I think she, she has, has to have peace. She I, has to find peace. I think she has given up in the sense that I think finding those belongings was as close as they could get to closure, which told them like he's not walking around somewhere. But I know that whenever his friends went to go look for him, they had this feeling of he was going to just appear suddenly and be like, hey, what are you doing here? And be like, I'm just living in a cave. The thing is, I believe he was killed. I believe he was murdered. I don't believe he committed suicide, which, you know, there's all kinds of people guessing at what might have happened. I don't believe he's still alive and and doing like a spiritual quest. I don't believe that. And his social media accounts have stayed live. And it's really kind of jarring and ghostly that people will comment on them. Some with things like, I know you're still alive, like wherever you are, I hope you found what you're looking for. And some people comment on them and don't realize the story of this person and are just like, hey, man, that's cool. If you're ever in, you know, Ireland, come say hi, whatever it is. I mean, that is the hardest thing, too, is you have so many people that are like friends of friends. So they might not be intimately aware, but still want, you know, I mean, I, we see this with 
past loved ones where it's like their birthday and people will post happy birthday and you know this happened to a friend and this happened to a loved one and they had to be like ooh they don't know mhm they don't know mhm i mean and it's just it the whole i just remember so clearly while it was unfolding and how confused we were and the information coming in so piecemeal that we were waiting to get the whole story, right? The whole picture. And whatever, however dark it was going to end up. And it was so weird that it tapered off in this way where we just never got it. Where it was oh. like, here's the latest, here's the latest. And it was like, and as it was unfolding, it was like, he disappeared and this Baba seems weird. And we were like, what happened? And then it's like the next thing you know, they're like, the Baba hung himself. And you're like, what? Like, are you kidding me? This is getting crazy. And I remember after he was gone for however long, maybe a month, and I was walking with Matt along the beach. And I was like, I knew he was like in denial about it for a while of just like, he's fine. He's fine. He wasn't even supposed to come back till a week, whatever it was. He's just, he's fine. Look at his last post. He's fine. Yeah. And I remember being like, I don't think Justin's coming back, Matt. And he was like, yeah. Okay. But me, okay. And it was so hard for him to settle into any kind of formal mourning. You can't. Which I can only imagine what his family went through. Oh my God. I mean, I'm, I think too, it's like we have these people in our lives that feel invincible, whether it's them doing risky crazy adrenaline adrenaline junky things like you know scaling buildings mm-hmm. and scaffolding and bridges mm-hmm. or it's people that you know fight an illness and and win each battle mm-hmm. you know and when they finally lose the battle or leave this world or go missing or what it is it's like it's it's unfathomable in a lot of ways, you know, like you can't like I mean, it's like you, everyone just kept saying if anyone could have survived whatever's happening, it was him. He was so physically strong, mentally strong. There was so much he had. He knew what he was doing. And the idea that it was as simple as some guy pushing him off a cliff when he wasn't expecting it is so is so grotesque hard to wrap your mind around it's also one of those things too where you're like yeah you're physically fit you're you're you are so capable of surviving in the craziest of elements but people is the weakness mm-hmm. right i don't it, it doesn't matter how strong you are a bad person's a bad person and someone can hurt you regardless mm-hmm. of your emotional or physical strength and so uh, it's so insane. It's scary. so scary. This guy sort of posing as a baba. And we don't know if it was him is the other thing I've thought oh, about. I, I have no doubt that Justin was murdered. I don't think he fell. It doesn't make any sense um, for a lot of reasons. And I don't think he uh, was suicidal. And I don't, you know, there's just, I think that it has to be murder. The question is, could it have been anyone else? Like I said, Pravardi Valley, it's one road in, one road out. If there were other random people on the trail, they'd have been seen, Yeah, I think. So it becomes like, 
this is the only cast of characters are these people and these people and who's the most likely it's to have done it it's that, this guy it's amazing that they had a photo of him at Mandalay Lake yeah oh my heart breaks for his family my heart breaks for Matt I can't imagine well, if you want to know more, more about Justin's life in this particular case, they go, obviously, um, this book goes so much deeper than I ever possibly could have. And he talked to the family and ex-girlfriends and friends and really built such a picture. And Justin did leave lead a really, really interesting life. So reading it is certainly worth your while um, in homage to this incredible Pers- this person. incredible person. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. Uh and now, a word from our sponsors. We know you're here because you like listening to people tell stories. We have something super exciting to share with you. It is not a podcast. It is a musical novella called Love in Times of War. It's a beautiful story set to music. It is a 28-cut concept album with 14 spoken word narrations and 14 instrumentals that complement and evolve the story and you can listen to it on Spotify. You can listen to it on Apple Music. You can buy the album. It is written and narrated by Beck Norman. The music is composed by James Keith Norman. It's a story of a pregnant young woman who's lost her lover in a war, and she sets out to raise her child until history repeats itself. It's engaging. It's impactful. It's also featuring Stephen Fry, which is pretty darn cool. But please go listen to Love in Times of War. It's a beautiful story set to gorgeous music, and you won't regret it. We know why you're here. You love a true crime. You love a true crime moment. And if you've listened to all of our episodes and you're like, ugh, I still need more true crime, then you should go to Eastern Crime Zone, another true crime podcast with host Cassie Malay. She's from Atlanta. She's an armchair detective, and she wants to take you through real true crime cases. So you'll hear some cases you're familiar with. You'll hear some cases you're not familiar with. Either way, you're probably going to hear some new information. Oh my God, the recent story, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it involves a lover who's been hiding in an attic for 20 years. If you want to know more, go listen to Eastern Crime Zone wherever you hear podcasts and get down with your true crime cell. Um, okay, so I'm glad I chose like a little bit of a shorty. Here's what happened. I have a list of like stories that I've found or names and I typed this name up and I went to go search for it and I couldn't locate any articles. Wow. I only could locate a forensic file episode. Okay. So I was like, That's... you know what? This is probably an unknown true crime story. So I, I just went with it. Go with it. So it's from Forensic Files, Grounds for Indictment. Love grounds for indictment and you'll understand the pun okay i knew it through. i saw how i felt it coming you felt it um so this is takes a place... coffee story no <laughs> i wish it was that, that would be, be so good. good so this is in front royal virginia it's near the shenandoah valley um it's like a place that's ripe with civil war history but it's like a big mountainous area there's hunting and fishing it's pretty rural it's september 26 2002 a guy is driving. It is like torrential, big downpour. And there's this place called like the Low Valley Bridge or I don't know what it's called. Low Valley Bridge, whatever. Mm-hmm. A driver is driving and he sees this car and next to the car there are two bodies. Yeesh. Yeesh is right. So he calls the police. The police come. It's raining, raining, raining. 
They see the two bodies, Joe Kovaleski, who is barely alive, hanging on, and 23-year-old, 23-year-old Tyree Ty Lathan, who is dead. Now, when the police came and they, they saw Ty Lathan's body, Ty has had a checkered past. He is well acquainted with the police, not in a good way. He's had a tough go at it, you know, Not because of potluck dinners. Not because of potluck Other dinners. Other reasons. Other reasons. Crime reasons. His stepmother, Ty's stepmother, is interviewed and she's like, listen, he he had a troubled past, but he's not he's not the sum of all the things that he've done. He's done that's wrong. He was he had a good heart. This is not someone, you know, and I and I appreciated that. Um so at the scene of the crime, remember, it is raining, so all this evidence is getting washed away. Mm-hmm. They find two shotgun shells, three phones, they find drugs in the car, circular tire marks nearby, and a bunch of blood. And the bodies. That's basically it. Got it. So the first thing to do is, obviously, Joe goes to the hospital. He is in a coma for five days. From his shot, from his gun wound, gunshot wound. So the first thing they do is they look at the phones. They're like, all right, like this one phone we know is Joe's. This one phone we know is Ty's. And who's this other phone? Mm -hmm. This other phone belongs to this girl, Julie Grubbs. And she was a friend with both of the guys. So they have that. So like, okay, we're going to interview Julie Grubbs. In the meantime, Joe, who's in a coma for five days, he wakes up. He comes to the only thing he can tell the police is he's like, I think it was a red Jeep. That's it. He's like, it's a red Jeep. It pulled up. I heard gunshots. I heard pops. And I was out. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. So like, okay, we're looking for a red Jeep. We have this woman, Julie Grubbs. So with the casings at the scene of the crime, they take a look at the um, the distance and angle that the shots were taken. So they have a forensic firearms examiner who does tests on paper to see like the angle the like distance and he sees that it's about six to nine feet away that the shots were taken and it does seem like it could have corresponded with the red jeep the window that it could have (laughs) come out of yes the jeep was either red or orange judging from the velocity (laughs) of the shot (laughs) (laughs) well just like the angle of the window i get it i get it it was Um, just you said red and i was like wow this guy's good so they saw tire marks but again the rain, rain, go away. So the rain, so the tire marks are in gravel. So they're not even to get, they're not even able to get like a tire marking because the gravel makes it that much more challenging. Oh, totally. So Julie Grubbs, this person whose phone is found at the scene of the crime, she has another phone. Mm-hmm. And they find that there were 22 calls from her phone to Ty Lathan's phone leading up to the murder. It's a lot of calls. Maybe he was ghosting her. Sorry. Don't bring, Too need soon. To bring up a sensitive Too subject. Too soon. Now, Julie Grubbs lives an hour away. She claims that she was at her apartment. She was not there. She's someone who has is involved with drugs, possible sex work. They interview someone. And I think his forensic files was on cable in like the 90s, early 2000s. I don't know. But this woman that they interviewed is like, I heard about Julie Grubbs. She had different ways of obtaining money. <laughs> Like a very nudge and a wink. And I was like, okay. Gotcha. So she had different ways of obtaining money, folks. Maybe she had an MLM. She probably was a LuLaRoe girl. (laughs) That's what I get from that. Yeah. And she was finding those sick, sweet patterns. Um, 
So the last call Julie made to him was like minutes before the murder. So they're about to interview Julie Grubbs and they're about to go interview her and then they get another lead. They hear that this friend of Ty's comes forward and is like, hey, listen, Ty was working at a work release center and the supervisor is this sheriff's deputy, Kevin Kinsey, and um, he was allowing them to traffic drugs at the work center program. Oh, shit. Which, like, super fun, right? Like, a work release program for people trying to get better. And this sheriff deputy is like, I know. Let's fucking sell Make drugs. Some money. There were sex workers through there. They were selling drugs. So because this happened, all of a sudden the FBI gets involved because they're like, a sheriff's deputy is involved in drug trafficking. We get involved. Kinsey, however, does not have a red Jeep. So they're opening this other case of, like, drug trafficking while still trying to figure out if there's any connection to this murder of Ty Lathan, which frankly, it seems pretty plausible. So Joe, who's in a coma, who says, I found the red Jeep, he's not being really transparent in his reports, I think for multiple reasons. One, he got shot. Two, he's like, if I know police are involved, I don't want to out them. He was like, I'm at a hospital. I feel like I'm a sitting duck. Like, I have no protection. If I out anyone, I'm dead. Like, they tried to kill me once. I'm in a hospital. I have no protection. I'm a sitting duck. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get killed. So they're following these leads, and they finally go and interview Julie Grubbs. So they go to Julie Grubbs' apartment building, and in the parking lot, would you believe it, there's a red Jeep. Oh, shit. They realize that the red Jeep, they, they, they do a run of the plates, and they notice that it is belong that it belongs to Julie's boyfriend, this guy, Louis Feltz who's another drug dealer in the area. Now, of course, they're like, hey, Louis, where were you in this night of the murder? He's like, actually, me and Julie were together at this apartment. So our alibi is sound. Uh, airtight. 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 Airbag airtight. Um, so they start tailing Louis Feltz, and they see him walking to his Jeep with a bunch of cleaning supplies. So the police, I don't know if this is... Okay, but I guess they were like, well, it's now or never. He's going to clean this Jeep. We have to fucking get involved. So they arrest him. They put him in custody. They take the Jeep and they put it away. Or I don't know if they take him in custody, but they definitely are like, we need that Jeep. Search one. Yeah, we, we need that Jeep. Jeep. Yeah. So they go to the Jeep um, and they start to look. They go through Julie Grubb's apartment that she shared with Louis Feltz. They find money, drugs, and they find the cell phone that she called Ty with 22 times. There is no shotgun at mm-hmm. all. So there's no murder weapon and they really don't have any physical evidence tying them to the scene of the crime except an eyewitness who was shot saying that he saw a red Jeep. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Jeep is in evidence and what they decide to do is they noticed a lot of dry mud on the wheels which was pretty rare because where the apartment is is it's not near a lake. It's not near water. So like they're not they're sure like, why. where were you driving? That yeah, muddy. where were you driving? And they're like, well, we were here the whole time so it's really weird. So they start to They take a sample of the dirt from the tires because, remember, they can't do the tires from the gravel. Mm -hmm. So they start taking this dried mud from the tires and they they um, ask this guy, forensic geologist Eric Younger, to go ahead and give it a look, see over. And he's like really into dirt. This guy, this guy is super like, I love dirt. It tells a story. Dirt's different within 30 feet of each other. We can tell a lot about dirt. The date I had with I would have this with this with this guy would be really boring, but it's really helpful in this situation. You know what Minerals. I think he's really good at? What? Talking dirty. 
Oh, I walked into it. God bless. Blessings upon your house. Sorry, go ahead. So he's looking through the dirt. He finds clay of vegetation. He's like, all right, this is normal dirt. When are we going to get to the good shit lollipop dirt? And he notices there are two minerals. There's this like blue azurite and green macolite. Malachite. They sound gorgeous. I mean, like, I bet there's, like, some properties. Like, I bet if you held it. Like, I bet if you go to a bougie store, they would sell you these and be like, this is for power and this is for money. <laughs> totally. thousand percent. Ironically, the money and power is what's going to tank the case for somebody, you know? People are going to go to jail because of this. So it's opposite money, opposite power. Yeah, opposite jail, day, gems. Fees. Goodbye. Um, so... They collect this information, they look at it, and they're like, oh, wow, fascinating. And, of course, it's forensic files, so they're like, wow, we really found the jackpot on this one. We got a azurite and a malachite. Wow, we did it. He's like, well, I don't know. You know, they, like, decide to, like, go through the process of being like, copper, it's nearby, downstream, Shenandoah. I don't care. What they do is they go to the murder scene and they go to the tire tracks that they have. They take a little sample of it and lo and behold, they find the mineral. As you're right, malachite in the fucking crime scene. However, they have the red Jeep there. They don't have any of them there. You feel? I feel. So you can't like, oh, put fuck. the Jeep in jail. They're like, this is hardly we fair. Found... There's no room. <laughs> the like, cells aren't big yeah. enough. This isn't the movie Cars, okay? <laughs> if that movie featured a murder car that went to jail, I would watch it. <laughs> I can't wait to pitch this movie in 20 years. <laughs> the movie Cars. <laughs> Cars not going to be the bad guy, folks. This isn't a Pixar short. Make it known right now. In 20 years, when the people who love cars grow up, I'm making a scary cars where there's a murder car. And it's trying to kill Lightning McQueen's lady. Okay? (laughs) I will buy a ticket to that movie. (laughs) Bored. (laughs) So they have some eyewitness accounts of this Lewis Feltz, like, at a convenience store in the area of the murder. Which, like, let's be honest... Eyewitness accounts, <sighs> snooze. They're not really, I mean, they're not that reliable. But another person comes forward, this guy, Mike Kennedy, and he's like, so uh, I sold the shotgun to uh, Lewis Feltz like three weeks before the murder. Uh, I feel like compelled to tell you. What a, what a guy. guy. What a fucking guy. And they're like, ah, yes, thank you so much for telling us. And like, well, these shotguns have basically like the way that the hammer pin does the shell casings is like they can see if it comes from the same gun. Mm-hmm. So this guy, they're like, did you ever shoot this gun? And he's like, oh yeah, I shot him in the backyard. So they go to Mike Kennedy's backyard and they find like nine shotgun shells and they like look at it and they microscope and they see it has like a similar two lines with a diagonal across it and they notice from the scene of the crime that it also has the same markings and they're like amazing we found the weapon we have reason to believe that he has it the police are like listen what's the motive behind this and people think it's like a love triangle so boring frankly honestly you want it to be a little more like i kind of i didn't want it to be the deputy sheriff who's the drug trafficker but that would be interesting Mm -hmm. right i mean that would be fascinating it's not it's a love triangle 
his Tells felt his time. jealous tie. I mean, like, and then poor Joe Kovaleski was like, I just went to go buy drugs in this low river bridge mm-hmm. and I just got shot in the fucking head. Yeah. Like, what a bummer. Wrong um, place, wrong time. Wrong place, wrong time. So they bring Feltz in and they lay out all this evidence. They're like, here's the truck. Here's the gun. Here's the calls. Here's all this information. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to stop you there. I'm going to plead guilty and I'm going to, I'm, 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 let's just, I'm going to plead guilty. So he pleads guilty to one count capital murder and one count attempted murder. He's sentenced to 25 years in prison. His girlfriend, Julie Grubbs, is not in jail. There is no evidence to put her away. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if she was calling him 22 to times him. to be like, do not meet him. What? Or she's like, you better meet him. I don't know. No one will know. Um, we don't know where her allegiance in the love triangle fell. But we do know she had very different ways of obtaining money. Sorry. <laughs> it was the dumbest shit. Joe, the other gunshot victim, is blind in one eye and he has limited mobility in his arm. But mm-hmm. he's alive. And Kevin Kinsey, the deputy sheriff, they ended up finding evidence and he was convicted of crack cocaine distribution and he got 40 months in jail. And that's why it is called Grounds for Indictment. Wow. I'm really glad you got to watch an episode of Forensic Files for your homework because, let's face it, they're pretty good. They're, I mean, listen, I don't think many people are telling this story because there's not much information. Like, literally one. And I just, like, it's this kind of just, like, it feels like a little bit, like, these guys being like, you know what? If there was evidence for Julie Grubbs, she would be in jail, too. If it was Kevin Kinsey, he would be in jail. Like, these, like, really just, like, rural police guys. Rural jurors? The rural jurors. (laughs) Got it. But he pled guilty, so he didn't have to go through any rural juries. Rural jurors. The rural juror. I'll never forget you, rural juror. I'll always be glad I met you, rural juror. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for tuning in, folks. Um, yeah, and that's a 30 Rock reference. I don't want to get sued by Tina Fey's husband. Oh, is he a lawyer? No, but he wrote the music for 30 Rock. He did? Did you not know this? I didn't. He's done a great job. You know, we're watching 30 Rock right now. Yeah, I love it. I love it right before bed. You may dream of Jeannie, but I dream of Jack Donaghy. Jack Donaghy. Yeah. Dear readers, thank you for joining us. See you next week. See you next week. Afida Sen. Uh-huh.